1: A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback.
0: This article is from The National. Date 26th August 2022. From the Culture section. Historic piece of SMP memorabilia discovered. Harking back to Winnie Ewing. By Steph Braun. Iconic pieces of SMP history harking back to the selection of Winnie Ewing as a by-election candidate have been uncovered. Dana Vadry Ferguson, 78, was clearing out her late husband Ian's old paperwork when she came across a letter he had received back in July 1967 from the SMP National Executive Committee authorising the Hamilton Constituency Association to contest a by-election that year with Ewing as the party's candidate. She then dug deeper into the piles of political memorabilia Ian had kept and along with other documentation relating to the by-election found an application form Ewing had filled in where she was requesting approval for her proposed nomination. The documents are now set to be kept in the SNP archives at the National Library in Edinburgh. Ian, who died in February aged 79, was constituency secretary for Hamilton back in the day and had built up a close working relationship with Ewing before she went down in party history. Danavadri from Lark Hall said she wanted to ensure the historic pieces were kept safe, once she found them. She told the National, Ian was the biggest hoarder on the planet. I used to wait until he had gone to the football, he was a big Motherwell fan, and then fling things out and then look innocent when he returned home. When I found the letter, because I'm not the type of person to keep things like that, I thought it had to go somewhere more important, like a library. And my first thought was the SNP's own archives. He was the constituency secretary at the time when Winnie was adopted. And the letter is addressed to him at his home address because the party was tiny. There were no party rooms. There was another document I found too, which is basically Winnie filling in a form saying, please, I'm a nice respectable Glasgow lawyer, can I stand in this by-election? I found a photocopy of it first and then found the original. It had her writing in blue on it. Ewing, who originally worked as a lawyer, won the Hamilton by-election by a landslide after it had previously been a safe Labour seat. Although she was not the first SNP MP, with the party having enjoyed a brief victory at the Motherwell by-election in 1945, It is considered a breakthrough moment for the party after she secured 46% of the vote in a seat the SNP had not even contested at the previous year's general election. The SNP has been represented at Westminster continuously ever since her victory. Ian's son, Ewan, who has been an SNP member for 25 years, said, I knew Ian had some old SMP stuff, but I didn't know specifically that he had the letter and form. I got brought up on the party and the stories of the SMP in the 60s and 70s. There's even a tale about me throwing my rattle at Margaret Thatcher on the telly when I was young, so it was exciting my mum found this. It's a very nostalgic piece. One of my earliest memories was at a school gallery and seeing this woman running up to my dad to give him a hug and it turned out that that was Winnie. It was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth that turned my dad towards independence as she was being referred to as Queen Elizabeth II when she was actually Queen Elizabeth I in Scotland. He used to scrub the second eye off pencils they had at school it's great the National Library is going to take them. That article was by Steph Brown. This article is from The National, date 26th August 2022, from the Culture Section. History of the wonderful Burrell Collection to be Explored in New Exhibit by Gregor Young. The story of how the wonderful Burrell collection came to be will be explored in the first exhibition at the museum, since it reopened following a major refurbishment. The Burrell's Legacy, a great gift to Glasgow, which opens tomorrow, charts the collecting and legacy of Sir William Burrell and his wife Constance, Lady Burrell. The collection was amassed by Sir William Burrell and donated to Glasgow by the shipping magnate and his wife in 1944. The museum, situated in Glasgow's Pollock Park, closed to the public in October 2016 and reopened in March this year following a £68.25 million project that increased its gallery space by 35%. The new exhibition features more than 100 objects which help tell the story of the Burl's evolution from the couple's private art collection to a civic museum of international significance. Laura Bald, Burrell project curator at Glasgow Life Museums, who put the exhibition together said, It's been an absolute joy working on this exhibition. Sir William Burrell and Constance Lady Burrell had a lifelong commitment to collecting and their generosity in donating their wonderful collection to Glasgow is astounding. Their gift has allowed generations of people, just like me, to enjoy breathtaking art from across the world and across time. She added, Burrell was such a thorough, prolific collector we could have shown so much more. This first exhibition is full of wonderful objects and the stories behind them. I hope people enjoy discovering more about the Burrells and how the world-class museum came to be located in Glasgow. Before they decided to make the donation, the Burrells had rarely collected objects from ancient civilizations. However, once they had committed to giving their collection to Glasgow, Sir William turned his attention to ensuring it was more representative of worldwide history. The Butlers donated about 6,000 objects in 1944, but by the time they died, Sir William in 1958 and Lady Constance in 1961, they had given about 3,000 more. Also on show will be A Mallard Rising by Glasgow boy Joseph Crawhall and a sculpture by Camille Claudel, which was acquired by the museum in 2021. Implorante is the first sculpture by a woman to enter the collection and it is said to be the first public UK collection to acquire a work by French sculptor Claudel. Duncan Dornan, head of Glasgow Life Museums and Collections, said, It seems appropriate that the first exhibition in the new borough reveals more about the couple themselves and the story behind the creation of the wonderful museum in which their collection is housed. The exhibition will run until April 16th, 2023 and admission is free. That article was by gregor young this article is from the national date 29th august 2022 from the culture section a look at the scots at the heart of the opium war with china by michael fry scottish history is full of national victories being won against long odds But these odds have never been quite so long as at the time when two fearless Scotsmen defeated the fury and might of Imperial China to force open its closed frontiers to the outside world. More to the point, the opening was to be for goods the Scots would bring with them. They especially wanted to break down the barriers to illegal drugs that ran right round the Celestial Empire. William Jardin and James Matheson were pursuing a path that had been opened to Scots by the Union of 1707 and was, for once, really paved with gold. From distant corners of their homeland, Jardin came from Dumfriesshire, and Matheson from Sutherland, they embarked on careers in overseas trade. For that, they first had to get jobs in the East India Company, headquartered in London but with a network of oriental outposts. This professional path opened up because after 1707 Scots entered behind the barriers of English commercial regulation. Now British subjects, they could be employed in lucrative occupations that appeared during the 18th century under the advantageous rules written from Westminster. Scots soon seized on this. The company held a monopoly over goods shipped directly to or from the UK and the Indian subcontinent. Yet the monopoly did not apply to goods going elsewhere, in Asia, to the Americas or to other European countries. On these routes, employees of the company could trade freely. They could make themselves extremely rich too. After a spell of commerce from Bombay or Calcutta, They would go home with huge fortunes to buy themselves some social status on a highland estate or even a parliamentary seat. Such a path followed by Jardin and Matheson. From India, China was steadily drawn into the system. Since the 15th century the Chinese emperors had officially banned foreign trade. They broadcast the view that they had created the Celestial Empire with no reason for imports from the primitive rest of the world. Foreigners might cross the seas bearing tribute, as the Mandarins put it. In exchange they would get some of the superior goods available for export. So the ban on trade was to Westerners, like so much in the Orient, a fiction. For example, in Europe Asia and the Americas, there were millions of customers for tea. Once Chinese consumers acquainted themselves with Indian textiles or European manufacturers, they could easily afford them with the Lapsang Souchon and other varieties that they sent in the opposite direction. It was easy enough for the imperial authorities to make a show, as they pleased, of arresting and investigating foreign merchants and captains. It was just as easy for unscrupulous foreigners to bribe the officials to keep the real relations friendlier. In truth, the Chinese Empire was choosing a hazardous path for itself. The most lucrative commodity to be traded was opium, made from plants growing in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains. Its narcotic effects were already a scrounge of India and grew the same in China as the trade multiplied. This was the world that opened up to Jardin and Matheson once they got to know the high seas and free exchange of the Far East. Matheson already had several relations working out there when he arrived to launch his own career in 1812. Jardin appeared in Canton in 1820 with a medical degree from the University of Edinburgh but soon switched to commerce. Over the next decade, Jardin, Matheson & Co, with its sharp practice and lack of financial scruple, burst apart the ramshackle regulations that the Chinese tried to impose from Canton. Their empire, in effect, lost control of its own commercial system and brought free trade right into the country's biggest port. Futile efforts to reverse the course of events caused the First Opium War with China in 1839, won for the UK by a Scots naval commander, Lord Napier. The clash ended with the solution of regulated but, in most important respects, open trade. The UK's position was assured for the future by the establishment of the Crown Colony of Hong Kong, beyond Chinese jurisdiction. Jardin and Matheson took up residence there and made it their corporate headquarters. The century up to the Second World War was the heyday for company and colony. Jardin, Matheson and Co no longer limited itself to trade but set up industrial and service enterprises for a wide range of products in the treaty ports subject to no more than the lightest international regulation. China continued to decay as a political entity, but the total dominance of the economy from the West made sure it ticked over enough to satisfy foreign investors. Countries other than the UK steadily obtained concessions, yet not so many as to rival British ascendancy. The first stirring of a renewed political consciousness among the abused Chinese people made otherwise little difference at the outset. Long wars between China and Japan, followed by the even wider Second World War, ended the old system. A completely new regime was created in the Chinese People's Republic in 1949. Faced with its hostility, Jardin Matheson Withdrew from all mainland operations in 1954. Finally, it became an offshore multinational in 1974, still with figures from the families of the original proprietors represented on the board, often also the owners of big houses and estates in southwest Scotland. That remains so in the 21st century. That article was by Michael Fry. This article is from The National, date ninth August 2022 from the News section. Baker Hughes workers begin strike action over fire and rehire dispute by Adam Robertson. Around 110 workers for US oil and gas giant Baker Hughes starting strike action on Monday August 29th with Unite Union accusing the multi-billion pound company of laying waste to Scottish jobs. Baker Hughes is one of the largest employers in Angus operating two sites in Montrose at Charleston Road and Forties industrial estate on Brent Avenue. This dispute comes over fire and rehire tactics With Unite saying that the company gave workers at the Angus sites five minutes notice before issuing redundancy notices in June. The company told workers that they have until early August to sign new contracts on less pay or face losing their jobs. Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham said the proposal to cut our members' pay by over £10,000 through fire and rehire tactics is a new low for an industry plagued by corporate greed. Our members are simply not prepared to accept this and throughout the strike action they will have UNITE's full support in their fight to protect their jobs, pay and conditions. The strike action will last until the morning of September the 14th which will be followed by a series of 4-8 hour stoppages taking place until November 16th. Unite members voted for strike action by 87.3% on a 87.5% turnout to defend their jobs, terms and conditions. The union has estimated that contractual changes could wipe off 29% from the annual wages of their workers an equivalent to what £10,500 drop in annual income. Unite industrial officer George Ramsey said, Unite's members are outraged and they are prepared to take strike action right into the winter to defend their pay. It is completely unacceptable that our members could lose up to a third of their income during the worst cost of living crisis in a generation. We are determined to fight this corporate bully and our strike action will continue until we win. The company employs around 250 workers who pioneer state-of-art manufacturing and engineering processes, including industrial 3D printing and virtual reality tools for the oil and gas industry. Baker Hughes has been contacted for comment. That article was by Adam Robertson. This article is from The National. Date 29th August 2022. From The Culture Section. Crime Writers to Go Head-to-Head in Old Enemy Football Clash. By Nan Sport. Best-selling author Chris Brookmeyer is urging people to support a Scotland-England football match with a difference. The free event will see crime writers from both countries swap their pens for football boots for their annual clash in Stirling during the Bloody Scotland International Crime Writing Festival which celebrates its 10th anniversary this year. Brookmeyer said It's not often you have a Scotland versus England football match on your doorstep. It's free, there are bloody Scotland cocktails, and most of the crime writers don't bite, so come and join us. The dramatic annual Torchlight Procession is also returning this year after a halt during the pandemic. Led by the pipes and drums of the Royal Borough of Stirling Pipe Band and Stirling and District Schools Pipe Band, It also aims to encourage people who don't normally attend literary events to take part. The Torchlit Parade is an amazing, rousing experience, said writer Denise Mina. We all light torches in the castle forecourt at sundown and march off following a pipe band as the sun sets over the valley. By the time we get to the bottom of the hill, It is pitch black and the atmosphere is incredible. Festivals often happen in towns that feel excluded, but the Torchlit Parade brings us all together through the medium of fire and pipe music. This year also sees the return of the popular Crime at the Coup Cabaret, featuring an array of crime writers showing off their musical talents while the annual quiz takes the form of Vasim Khan and Abir Mukhaji's Red Hot Night of a Million Games, in which they aim to steal and mash up the best parts from the game shows of yesteryear. Guests at the festival, which will run for four days from September 15th to 18th, include Sir William Rankin, Anthony Horovitch, Lisa Unger, Geoffrey Archer, Anne Cleves and Frankie Boyle. Those who can't make it to Stirling can buy digital passes for individual events or the whole weekend. Writers Val McDermott, David Baldacci, Sarah Paretsky, Donna Leon and Irvin Welsh will all join live for digital sessions. That article was by Nan Sport. This article is from The National, date ninth August 2022, from the Politics section. Scots eligible for disability payment will not be subjected to degrading examinations. By Jane MacLeod. Scots eligible for disability benefit will not be subject to degrading functional examinations, a Minister has pledged, as applications for the new payment open today. The adult disability payment replaces the personal independence payment and is designed to provide financial support to people aged between 16 and state pension age who are disabled, have a long-term health condition or have a terminal illness. Ben McPherson, Holyrood's Minister for Social Security, said the launch was a significant milestone in the development of our new Social Security system that will treat everyone with dignity, fairness and respect. Those already receiving the Personal Independence Payment or Disability Living Allowance will be automatically transferred from the Department for Work and Pensions, or DWP, to Social Security Scotland. Macpherson said, In our Scottish system, no one will be subject to DWP style assessments or degrading functional examinations, and we will never use the private sector to carry out health examinations. People will only be invited to a consultation on occasions when we require more information so we can make a decision. This will be a conversation with a health and social care professional to understand how a person's disability or health condition impacts them. The benefit which is worth between £24.45 and £157.90 per week will be paid out to more than 300,000 people north of the border once the transfer is completed by the end of 2025. The benefit is being launched for applications after pilot schemes in 13 council areas which began in March. Moira Tasker, Chief Executive of Inclusion Scotland, described the benefit as a leap forward it has the potential to enable disabled people and Scots with long-term health conditions to participate in their communities and wider Scottish society, whether that is through work, education, family life or simply a life lived without fear of phone calls or letters demanding repeated assessments and sanctions, she said. That article was by Jean MacLeod.
2: From the National... Tuesday the 30th of August 2022 from the news section Crime figures at lowest recorded levels since 1974 new statistics show by Adam Robertson Crime is at its lowest levels recorded in Scotland by police for a 12 month period since 1974 according to statistics published on Tuesday The latest figures show that there was a 5% fall in police recorded crime for the year ending 2022 compared to the same period last year This is permanently driven by a reduction in coronavirus restrictions crimes. However, the statistics, which cover the period year ending June 2022 and the previous four years, show that recorded crime is 5% lower than before the pandemic in the year ending 2018, with a total fall of 43% since 2006-07. Justice Secretary Keith Brown said, We know that Scotland continues to be a safe place to live, where the vast majority of people do not experience crime. Every year, there are thousands fewer victims in Scotland than there were 15 years ago. But there's more to be done. Continuing to reduce crime and the harm it causes both individuals and our society as a whole is central to our ambitious vision to reform our justice system. The overall reduction in recorded crimes reflected in the Scottish Crime and Justice Survey for 2019-20, published in March 2021, which shows that 1 in 8, 11.9%, Adults were the victims of crime in 2019-20. This is significantly less than the one in five who were victims of crime for the period 2008-9, 24.4%. Brown continued, Where crime does occur, we have made £48 million pounds available to organisations that support victims over the next three years. A move that underlines our absolute commitment to putting victims very firmly at the centre of the justice system. We have invested over £24 million to specifically target violence reduction since 2008 and we will highlight our priorities to tackle violence when we publish the first ever violence protection prevention framework later this year. The stats also showed people living in Scotland are less likely to be victims of crime than in England and Wales, where 13.3% of adults were the victims of crime in 2019-20. Over the same period, From 2008-09 to 2019-20, the proportion of adults in Scotland who felt safe from walking alone after dark in their local area increased from 66% to 77%. Brown added, While the police cleared up more sexual crimes in 2021-22 than ever before, like many other countries, Scotland continues to see growth in reported cases. Multiple factors lie behind the increase including a greater willingness of victims to come forward. More historical reporting, more online offending and the impact of new legislation. We also remain absolutely committed to supporting our hardworking police officers as recruitment bounces back from the COVID period and the necessary closure of Tully Allen Training College to ensure the safe placing of the COP twenty six climate summit. And that article is by Adam Robertson. From the National, Tuesday the thirtieth of August 2022, from the news section Exclusive Shetland reacts to £10,000 energy bill warning, people are really worried and scared, by Adam Robertson. People in Shetland are really worried and scared as the cost of living crisis continues to escalate in the community, according to a local councillor. Estimates suggest that the average energy cost in the aisles could rise to as much as £10,000 per year by April. People have been warned they could need to earn at least £104,000 in order to avoid slipping into fuel poverty. Green's councillor for Shetland, South, Alex Armitage, told The National he was not surprised by the news. We are much more vulnerable. We know the cost of living in Shetland are higher. Obviously we have the harsher weather as well, including stronger gales and draft-proofing homes is an order of magnitude, which is more difficult than it is elsewhere, he explained. A lot of homes are very leaky, the cost of fuel is extortionate already, and it's only getting worse. I think in Shetland we're much more vulnerable. I'm a children's doctor and I've had patients saying this winter will ruin them. People are really worried and scared. We've got lots of potential here to generate renewable energy, but sadly we're not seeing the benefits of that. Our said that a huge amount of spending is needed to mitigate the suffering that people are going through. However, Liz Trustees Camp has said that our plans to, sup- to help support people will not be announced, until she has the full support and advice available to the government of the day. Armitage added, Help has got to come from all levels of government, but the issue is that the Scottish government has its hands tied. It's not in a position to spend the money that's needed. It is absolutely the UK government that needs to stand up and help people. The councillor's thoughts were echoed by the Scottish Green MSP, Ross Greer, who said that Scotland's fate could not be left in the hands of an uncaring Tory government. The leader of the Shetland Islands Council, Emma MacDonald, has written to the Chancellor demanding that action be taken. She said, Our islands have been at the heart of oil and gas activity for over 40 years, yet our people have not seen the benefits of that in terms of lower cost of fuel. Shetland has contributed, and will continue to contribute, significantly to UK energy exports, and yet people in our communities will struggle to heat their homes in the coming year. This is particularly ironic, given the continued development of offshore and onshore renewable energy production around Scotland. Earlier this month, it was revealed that that three new offshore floating wind projects had been offered seabed agreements as part of the County State Scotland's Scotland Cleaning Process. The Scotland Leasing Programme allows developers the rights to construct and operate offshore wind farms on areas of seabed in Scottish waters. All three projects are set to focus on the development of green hydrogen technology, which is hoped can replace all the diesel and petrol used in Shetland by 2050. Figures in a report titled Shetland's Household Energy Situation in numbers showed the total water energy cost for Shetland in 2021-22 was £18,175,912. Across 22 23 that's it figures expected to triple to over 56 million pounds. Armitage said that skyrocketing bills are going to hit the poorest hardest, but that would affect everybody. He continued, "This will hurt everyone. It's a cruel way for the people of Shetland to be treated, and the whole of the UK hasn't been giving any assurances we're going to be okay." I'm fortunate; I have a doctor's salary, but the cost of my bills are eye-watering. Myself and my family are worried and I can only imagine what it's like for people who aren't so fortunate. A survey conducted found that 96% of households could come to be spending 10% of their income in energy costs. Scottish Liberal Democrat MSP for Shetland, Beatrice Wishart, said the figure showed the scale of the vast challenge ahead. She said, One long established business is saying that when they enter calculations for increasing energy costs in coming months, they turn into a substantially loss-making entity. You shouldn't have to be a millionaire to stay warm this winter. Liberal Democrats have set out plans to block the energy price rise before it happens but we cannot wait weeks for a new Conservative Prime Minister to act. The government must step in now to help families and pensioners on the aisles and beyond by cancelling the planned rise in energy bills. Wishart's comments come as the SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford calls on the UK government to match the support being provided in Scotland to help people with the cost of living. And that article was an exclusive by Adam Robertson.
1: Recorded from the Herald on the 30th of August 2022 from the Sports Section Recorded by Amy Duncan Ferguson Open to Dundee United Managerial Talks by Ewan Payton Duncan Ferguson is reportedly open to potentially becoming the next Dundee United manager. Jack Ross was sat by the Premiership side this morning. It comes just days after an embarrassing 9-0 loss against Celtic at Anadise. Attentions for th- for the Tayside club have now turned to finding Ross's replacement. And according to the Courier, Ferguson is interested in the vacant post. Ferguson has spent time coaching at Everton over the last few years, and his experience as caretaker boss of the Toffees on two separate occasions. He left the Goodison Park Club in July with a view to becoming a manager in his own right, and if reports are to be believed, he is open to speaking to United Chiefs. Big Dunk made his United debut at Ibrox in November 1990. His final outing in Tangerine came and in an away clash to Falkirk in 1993, before he made the move to Rangers. That article was by Ewan Payton.
3: from the National, Tuesday, the thirtieth of August, twenty twenty-two, from the sports section. Celtic manager Ange Postecoglou sends message to his players as Rangers and Real Madrid showdowns loom. Ange Postecoglou has told his Celtic players to ignore the forthcoming fixtures against Rangers and Real Madrid, and focus fully on the Premier Sports Club match against Ross County. Excitement is growing among the Parkhead club's supporters about the Cinch Premiership match against their Glasgow rivals on Saturday and the Champions League group stage encounter with the Spanish giants a week tomorrow. Callum McGregor and his teammates romped to a record-breaking 9-0 triumph over Dundee United at Tannadice on Sunday to maintain their 100% record in the 2022-23 campaign and return to the top of the league table. Their fans are hopeful they can forge further ahead of their nearest challengers in the Premiership and defeat the reigning European champions if they can produce a repeat of their Tayside display. However, Postacoglo is only concerned with his charges launching the defence of the League Cup, the first trophy that he lifted in this country back in December, with a win in Dingwall tomorrow night and keeping their hopes of landing a treble alive. The Greek-Australian can recall how it took an injury-time goal from Anthony Ralston to record a narrow 2-1 victory over Malky Mackay's side at the Global Energy Stadium last year and knows his team will need to be at their very best to triumph. Asked if the 9-0 rout of United would give Celtic confidence ahead of the Rangers and Real Madrid matches, he said, I don't look at it like that as we have 50-odd difficult games to come. We have one on Wednesday night, and that's the only one at the forefront of my mind. Ross County away, as we all know, is such a difficult proposition, particularly in midweek and in a cup game. From my perspective, that's where our interest lies. We need to get the job done there and play our football, and then tackle the next task beyond that. We knew these games were coming, and we have worked hard with the full squad to make sure we are ready. Meanwhile, Posticoglu has singled out one Celtic player for special praise following the resounding triumph over United at the weekend, goalkeeper Joe Hart. the former England internationalist suffered a head knock after making a save from a Glenn Middleton shot in the second minute of the Tannadice match and required six minutes of medical attention before continuing. He was hardly involved thereafter, but his manager believes he set the tone for the showing early on and ensures the Scottish champions perform at their best in every training session and game due to their professionalism. Asked how Hart was, he said, he's fine. He didn't have a lot to do, and maybe his performance will be overlooked, but he's such a professional and drives the standards every day. On Sunday, we could maybe have gone a goal down, and that may wake you up, but he doesn't allow that to happen. He makes a great save and shows the bravery to dive at the opponent's feet. It's a credit to him. That article was by Matthew Lindsay. From the National, Tuesday the 30th of August 2022, from the Sports Section. Motherwell slapped with UEFA fine for fan behaviour in Sligo Rovers tie. By Ewan Payton. Motherwell have been slapped with a UEFA fine for two incidents in their games against Sligo Rovers. The Fir Park side have been fined £4,282 in total by European football's governing body. Firstly, the Premier side will need to pay £2,569 after the assistant referee was struck by a plastic bottle during the home leg of the Europa Conference League tie, which ended 1-0 Sligo. And they will have to fork out another £1,712 for fireworks being set off during the second leg in Ireland. The overall tie ended 3-0 to Sligo which essentially cost Graham Alexander his job. A Motherwell statement the day after the first leg, when the missile was thrown at the official, warned they were expecting punishment from UEFA and warned supporters to cut it out. It read, We were very disappointed at an incident which took place late in the game, where a plastic bottle was thrown towards the assistant referee from the north end of the John Hunter stand. Over the last few seasons, there have been a couple of occasions where objects have been thrown onto the field of play at Fir Park. Our policy has always been to deal with individuals quietly and efficiently, and we have handed out indefinite bans to those who we have been able to identify. To put it in some context, we are talking about a very small number of flashpoints over a few seasons, and the overwhelming majority of Well fans who follow the team are passionate, noisy and colourful, but do not overstep the mark by endangering players, officials or staff. The incident last night is now being investigated by UEFA and the likelihood is the club will be punished. We ourselves will work hard to identify the person responsible and will take firm action. It goes without saying, but throwing any objects onto the pitch is unacceptable at Fur Park or any other football stadium. The club have also been handed warnings about not having enough toilets in the South Stand. This article was by Ewan Payton.
4: The National News on Wednesday, the 31st of August. Charity launches Pakistan Appeal. An article written by Jane MacLeod. A Glasgow based charity has launched an emergency appeal to support victims of the devastating floods in Pakistan. The Sawa Foundation is aiming to provide 100,000 ration packs to displaced families. It says donations of £30 will provide a ration pack for a family of six for a whole month. The Sawa Foundation, launched by former Labour MP Mohamed Sawa, has years of experience providing food parcel support during emergencies, helping tens of thousands of families during the Covid crisis and the 2005 earthquake. The heavy rain and floods in Pakistan in recent months have killed more than a 1,000 people, while millions have been displaced and are waiting for food, drinking water and shelter. At least 700,000 homes have been destroyed, and rescue teams are struggling to reach cut-off communities, with provinces such as Sindh and Baluchistan the worst affected. The Sawa Foundation says its teams have already started providing ration packs to families, with an aim of reaching all parts of Pakistan. The charity is working with the Punjab Development Network to provide relief to flood victims. The foundation works to tackle poverty in Scotland and Pakistan, providing clean water and free health care to millions in the Punjab. Mr Sawa, father of Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa, said... Humanitarian aid is urgently needed in Pakistan, where hundreds of people have tragically lost their lives and thousands more are struggling to survive. Our target is to provide 100,000 ration packs to displaced families and a donation of just £30 will enable us to feed a household for a month. The people of Glasgow and Scotland have shown immense kindness to the people of Pakistan in the past. And we appeal to anyone who can help us respond to this emergency to make a donation. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National. News. On Wednesday the 31st of August. Next rail workers strike to take place over Labour conference weekend. An article written by Laura Webster. Rail workers are to stage a fresh 24-hour strike next month in an escalation of the national dispute over pay, job security and conditions. Members of the Transport Salaries Staffs Association, or TSSA, at nine train operating companies as well as network rail, will walk out from midday on Monday, September 26th. According to Sky News, the train companies likely to be involved in this strike include Trans-Pennine Express, West Midlands Trains, Avanti West Coast, Coast to Coast, Cross Country, East Midlands Railway, Great Western Railway, LNER and Southeastern. The union remains in talks with Network Rail about the possibility of a settlement, but is urging Transport Secretary Grant Shapps to intervene in a bid to break the deadlock. The strike action will coincide with a Labour Party conference in Liverpool. As a Labour-affiliated union, the TSSA said it would be looking for support from delegates and MPs to join them on the picket lines, but Sir Keir Starmer will not join striking workers. TSSA union leader Manuel Cortes said, The dead hand of Grant Sharps is sadly stopping train operating companies from making a revised, meaningful offer. Frankly, he either sits across the negotiation table with our union or gets out of the way to allow railway bosses to freely negotiate with us as they've done in the past. The reason for the current impasse lies squarely at Mr Sharp's door and passengers are paying a high price for his incompetence and intransigence. I welcome the fact that negotiations are ongoing with Network Rail and the gap towards a resolution is narrowing. Time will tell whether a deal can be done to avert our next strike. I'll be standing on the picket line in Liverpool and will be encouraging fellow delegates and Labour MPs to do likewise, so that they can rightly show they stand shoulder to shoulder with those fighting the Tories' cost-of-living crisis. Labour leader Sakir Starmer again ruled out joining workers on a picket line, insisting that his focus was on forming the next government. He told Channel 5's Jeremy Vine programme, When it comes to industrial action, I completely understand why people are voting to go out on strike. I understand how much they're struggling. Wages have been stagnant for the best part of ten years. We've now got a cost-of-living crisis, so prices are going up. Asked if he would join TSSA workers on the picket line, he said, No, I want a Labour government. I want to be a Labour Prime Minister. You can't sit around the cabinet table resolving issues and then walk onto a picket line. They're different jobs. A Department for Transport spokesperson said, For the eighth time this summer, union leaders are choosing self-defeating strike action over constructive talks, not only disrupting the lives of millions who rely on these services, but jeopardising the future of the railways and their own members' livelihoods. These reforms deliver the modernization our rail network urgently needs are essential to the future of rail and will happen strikes will not change this an article written by Laura Webster the national on Wednesday the 31st of August opinion covid isn't over yet and we can't pretend that it is a column written by Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh You could be forgiven for believing that Covid-19 is all over, by the shouting. More often than not, it no longer even appears in any news bulletin, and only then when someone prominent catches it, like the recent repeated infections of the US President and the First Lady. This media and public complacency is not borne out by any statistical or human reality. Worldwide, five million cases are still being recorded every week. That's correct the population of Scotland is being recorded as infected each and every week, and in reality that is a minute fraction of the true figure. For example, the UK recorded through testing a mere 10,000 cases last week. But we know from the Office for National Statistics survey evidence that the actual infection rate was over 2 million, that's 200 times the recorded positive test level. As vaccination has spread over the globe, so the serious illness and death rate has declined. But this is all relative. Almost 13,000 souls died with Covid last week. Of course, that's well down on the winter of 2020 and 2021, when approximately that number of human beings were dying every single day. But it's still a mighty number. Let's imagine ourselves back into the pre-pandemic world and a new virus was detected which was killing 2,000 people worldwide every day or, as it did over last week, 674 people across the UK. There would be pandemonium. It would lead every bulletin, dramatic public health measures would be introduced and every sinew would be strained to cope with a pandemic. Not now. Politicians tell people not to be complacent but then speak about the pandemic in the past tense. The public has settled into a comfortable sense of security that Covid is now akin to a bad cold or a mild flu. Except that it is not. Among the recent celebrity tweets of Covid infection, one in particular caught my eye. Pfizer chief executive Albert Burla tested positive for Covid-19 and was experiencing very mild symptoms, he revealed on Twitter. He also confided that he had received four doses of his own company's vaccine and was starting a course of its antiviral wonder drug Paxlovid. I do hope Albert has made a full recovery, but his affliction demonstrates two things. Firstly the ingenuity of coronavirus in evading even the most boosted vaccines and afflicting even those vaccinated to the hilt. It's true that, by and large, the variants against a vaccinated population are proving significantly less vicious than the original virus against unprotected victims. However, that does not account for the impact of long Covid, currently afflicting an estimated 3% of the population and where the jury is well and truly out. Nor does it allow for further variants which could break through the vaccine defences in even more spectacular fashion. Over centuries, viruses get less potent as natural human defenses build up. There's no such guarantee with COVID. In just a few years, the real current worldwide rate of weekly infection is probably a hundred million or so. That's a hundred million potential mutations every week. Any one of which could turn into something yet more deadly. Secondly, the aforesaid Mr. Bourla is very lucky not to be relying on the Scottish Health Service for his treatment. At 60, he would have received three vaccinations, not four, and would not have been prescribed his $500 treatment antiviral. Although Paxlovid is designed to treat mild to moderate COVID-19 and is highly successful, in Scotland it's being effectively rationed by most GPs to those elderly and at-risk patients who have already developed severe symptoms. In other words, in Scotland you have to be near the point of hospitalisation before you will be prescribed a drug designed to prevent severe illness and hospitalisation and Mr Burla would not have qualified. The reality of Covid-19 as of August 2022 is this. The virus is still killing tens of thousands of people every week across the globe and hundreds across the UK. Despite the initial impressive rollout of the new vaccines, The coronavirus virus worldwide is still mutating, one step ahead of the science, and a full virus vaccine is still some way away. The vaccination programme in the UK, under the near-somnolent Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, has slowed to a trickle, leaving many partially vaccinated people unnecessarily vulnerable to severe illness, while the NHS is rationing the costly antiviral treatments. At the rate the health services are moving, many over 50s will have caught the flu before they get their double winter vaccines, and most people will have been a full year since their last booster COVID shot. As a result, people are still suffering and dying unnecessarily. There's nothing whatsoever to be complacent about, and out with our absolutely heroic frontline health and caring staff, Little to be proud of in this catalogue of incompetence and complacency in this sick pretense of a public health policy. Meanwhile, at the real business end of the virus, where the money is to be made, Moderna is suing Pfizer and Biotech for infringement of vaccine development patents. A column written by Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh. The National on Wednesday, the 31st of August. Opinion. The blame for this crisis lies at Westminster's feet. A column written by Alan Smith. They say a week is a long time in politics, yet as we approach the seventh week of this dreadful Tory leadership contest, it will have felt like an eternity for households and businesses across Stirling, Scotland and indeed the UK, who can see the UK government asleep at the wheel as these islands drift further towards an autumn and winter of discontent, despair even. I have spent the last few weeks out and about across Stirling, talking to people and businesses, and the attitude is unanimous. More needs to be done, and we don't want politics, son. We want action. Energy bills are going to push millions of people UK-wide into real difficulty, and inflation and low-wage growth will do the rest. I'm honestly terrified of some of the numbers I'm seeing in the forecasts. And yet, instead of action, we've seen Boris Johnson off on holiday and, like that infamous scene in Clockwork Orange, been forced to watch a Tory leadership circus unfold as domestic and international relationships are put through the shredder in attempts to pander to the Conservative right. Nicola Sturgeon is awkward, ignore her and Scotland with her. Northern Ireland is tricky, just blame the EU and when that makes it worse, blame them even more. Is the French President an ally? Well, the current Foreign Secretary isn't sure. Ruinous, boneheaded stuff that will have real consequence. Try sorting out the people trafficking in the Channel or holier delays at Dover when the French authorities think you're a wrongan. Energy bills and the UK's demonstrably broken energy market are driving a cost-of-living crisis compounded by the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the ongoing effects of the COVID-19 pandemic – as well as Brexit. Other European nations are also tackling the first two factors and to varying degrees the third, and yet the UK's inflation is the worst in the G7 and prices are hitting 40-year highs. Twelve years of austerity and a fairytale belief in the power of free markets has rendered our communities and public services vulnerable to economic shocks. And far from fixing the roof while the sun was shining, Tory austerity has simply sold off the family silver and stripped back the state to the bone to a point where there isn't much resilience in the system. Energy-rich Scotland has been left deeply exposed by the macroeconomic failings of successive UK governments, and unless we see major changes in UK government policy or, pending independence, the devolution of the powers and budgets for Scotland to act unilaterally, It's the poorest in our society who'll bear the brunt of these failures. And not just the poor. Businesses and industry are vulnerable to surging energy prices, with no equivalent of the domestic energy price cap in place. We've seen endless warnings of catastrophe from industry and sector bodies, who predict ruin if swift action isn't taken. Even yesterday, I heard of another local business, this time in Plein, just outside Stirling, shutting up shop because the numbers are just too big. Our high streets and city centres are working through a still fragile recovery from the pandemic. They can't face the astronomical energy costs demanded by our badly broken energy market. And this is to say nothing of public authorities, local authorities, the police, fire and rescue services, universities, colleges and all the others trying to calculate how much rising energy costs will hit stretched public budgets already struggling with entirely justifiable wage demands. But households, particularly those on low incomes, young families and pensioners are in real trouble now. The dreadful choice between heating and eating may indeed end up as no choice at all as energy costs rise. Some estimates predict almost one third of Scots will be in extreme fuel poverty by January 2023 if the UK government doesn't get a grip and fast. I and SNP colleagues have proposed numerous solutions thus far without response from the here today gone tomorrow ministers of the UK government. Firstly, the price cap rise must be cancelled, with the UK government and energy companies working together to find a way of funding this freeze over a longer period of time. The SNP is also supportive of a broad windfall tax on excessive profits, the uprating of social security payments and fundamental reform of the energy market. External shocks and events will always shape the politics of the day, but the unarguable fact that energy-rich Scotland has had an energy crisis foisted upon it by Westminster mismanagement is flatly obscene. But the response of the state and policymakers to those challenges remains within the grasp of civic society, and we will all of us need to do what we can. The people of Scotland will not accept denials and inaction as we face a crisis made worse by the UK's own internal failings. A column written by Alan Smith. The National Politics on Wednesday the 31st of August. Young Lib Dem launches Scottish Liberals for Indy campaign group. An exclusive article written by Steph Braun. A young Lib Dem member who used to be a hardline unionist has launched an independence campaign group after becoming frustrated with the party's stance on the issue. Cameron Greer and fellow member Jake Stevenson have started up Scottish Liberals for Indy, which they hope will give the Lib Dems a voice within the Yes movement ahead of a planned referendum next October. The pair are planning to apply for the group, which is not currently officially affiliated with the Lib Dems, to become an associated organisation of the party after receiving an unexpected wave of support since it was launched on social media on Monday. Mr Greer, who's 17, hopes the group can persuade the leaders to adopt a more neutral stance on independence and vow never to join a unionist campaign group like Better Together in the event of a second referendum. Mr Greer joined the Lib Dems in lockdown, and like the vast majority of members, he was pro-UK. But as he watched how Westminster was running the UK throughout the pandemic, his mind shifted as he realised Scotland needed a new path. I was a very hard unionist for quite a while, but then I started researching more about independence, and eventually I thought the situation is so bad in Westminster, how can independence be worse than how the UK is being run, said Mr Greer. In adopting his new views, Mr Greer confessed he felt initially isolated within the party, thinking he was the only one who could feel affectionate about Scottish independence in a Federalist, Unionist organisation. But he soon discovered he was not alone, and there were even conveners of local Lib Dem parties that supported self-determination for Scotland. Now he wants to be able to bring all these voices together and ensure the party can have its say on what an independent Scotland should look like. Mr Greer told The National, I didn't know any other Lib Dems who were independent supporters, and I didn't think there were any. That made me feel isolated, but I messaged someone from within the party who I was quite good friends with, who said there were actually a lot of us. We've got a few conveners of local parties who are independent supporting, I think. So when I found Jake Stevenson on Monday, I said we need to set up a group to bring all of us together so we don't feel isolated. We're quite a small minority because it's a unionist party, but we are here. I think there should be a group within the party to give us a voice in the Yes movement so we don't have to individually campaign for it. The group has already attracted almost a thousand followers on Twitter in less than 48 hours, with even Lib Dems from England offering their support. Mr Greer, who's from Langham in the traditionally Tory Scottish borders, admitted he's become frustrated with the Scottish Lib Dem leadership's opposition to another referendum. Leader Alex Cole-Hamilton earlier this month vowed to fight tooth and nail to stop India 2 and did not rule out teaming up with other pro-union parties in this mission but Mr Greer hopes if Scottish Liberals for Indy is accepted by the party, it will be able to persuade the leadership to adopt a neutral standpoint, allowing members the space to campaign for whichever side they wish. He also insisted the party should not join a Better Together-style campaign again. I think everyone gets to that point within their own party where they feel a bit frustrated, and I felt frustrated, but it's part and parcel of being in a party, he added. There are always going to be different opinions, and you're not always going to agree with the leadership, and that's healthy. We're still establishing our aims and policies, but what we're probably going to campaign for is a neutral stance on independence from the party, as opposed to a pro-independence one, so people can choose what they campaign for. A spokesman for the Liberal Democrats said, This Twitter account is not affiliated with the Scottish Liberal Democrats. We do not support the breakup of the UK. An exclusive article written by Steph Braun. The National. Politics. On Wednesday the 31st of August. LBC's Nick Ferrari mocks Tory minister over broadband humiliation after internet boast flops. An article written by Hamish Morrison. A Tory minister was left red-faced during an interview after his own dodgy internet connection undermined his boasts about government investment in broadband. A minister suffered connection problems during a radio interview to announce the UK government's advances in providing gigabit-capable broadband. Broadband minister Matt Warman's line failed shortly after he spoke about the huge progress in rolling out hyperfast gigabit-capable broadband across the UK. The unfortunately-timed technical hitch prompted LBC's Nick Ferrari to remark, This is handy, as you're the broadband minister. You can't hear me, can you? That is sensational and the picture's frozen. So there we go. We've got the government banging on about however many billion pounds worth it is of gigabit and he can't take the question. You can't hear me, but I'll be polite. Matt Warman, Minister for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, talking about the progress of broadband and the line collapses. But thank you for your time. Earlier in the exchange, Mr Warman said the proportion of people accessing gigabit-capable broadband has risen from 9% to 70% in the last three years. He said, That is huge progress at a pace that was way above what we were hoping for when we set those targets in 2019. So really good news. But of course there are still 30% of people that we are working as fast as we possibly can to get to, and that pace shows we're going to get to them as quickly as we possibly can. Asked if the whole of the UK was connected, he replied, Well, in some form, all bar the most remote properties are connected to broadband of some sort, and satellite can mop up the rest, but there's a lot of work to do. I'm not pretending anything else, but as I say, the pace that's got us to where we are today is a huge sign of intent and the things that are to come. The vast majority of the progress that we're announcing today is coming from the private sector. On Tuesday, the outgoing premier will visit North Dorset, where work is kicking off on the first major contract under the government's Project Gigabit. Boris Johnson said he was proud of the expansion and that it demonstrated levelling up. An article written by Hamish Morrison. The National Politics on Wednesday, the 31st of August. World needs to get used to Scotland being a global actor an exclusive front-page article written by Steph Braun. A former U.S. State Department official has insisted the world needs to get used to Scotland as an international actor. The remark from Antonia Chambers, who has advised presidents and other policymakers in the United States, is revealed in the second edition of Stephen Gethins' book Nation to Nation, Scotland's Place in the World, which is due for release next month. The former North East Fife MP spoke to Ms Chambers as part of his research into Scotland's international footprint. Ms Chambers told Mr Gethins Scotland needs to build its international role and that the world must pay attention to what's happening in the country. In a segment seen exclusively by The National, Mr Gethins writes, Given the impact of Brexit, the continued debate about independence and Scotland's long-standing international footprint – there's also interest among the international community in what's happening in Scotland. In researching this book, Antonia Chambers, a long-serving senior US State Department analyst, told me Scotland also needs to build its international role, saying Scotland needs to build these links, be it with business, academia, science, and a range of other actors to get them accustomed to a Scottish perspective. Ms Chambers also stressed that the world needed to pay attention to what was happening in Scotland, saying the world needs to get used to Scotland as an international actor. Ms Chambers, who spent the latter part of her career focused on Arctic policy, also spoke about the increased importance of northern sea routes. She argued Scotland could be a terminus for these, but there's a need to plan for change now. Global warming means that the Arctic is becoming more accessible to transport and commerce due to melting ice, bringing economic and security challenges and opportunities, Mr Gethins added in the introductory chapter. This will be important for Scotland. Antonia Chambers told me of the increased importance of northern sea routes. She told me in late 2021 that there could be change within a timescale of 5 to 10 years, and while Scotland could be a terminus for northern sea routes, there is a need to plan for change now. The Scottish Government appears to be paying closer attention to the Arctic than the UK Government. That's natural, given geography, but there's been some criticism at Westminster that the UK Government has failed to take the issue as seriously as it should, with concerns expressed by committees in the Lords and the Commons. The first edition of Nation to Nation was released last year, in which Mr Gethins argues a Scottish-influenced foreign policy could bring hope to countries across the globe. In the second edition, he delves into the topic further through seven chapters exploring an unwanted divorce between Scotland and the EU, Scotland and the High North and the UK's foreign policy divergences. Mr Gethins, who was the SNP's foreign affairs and Europe spokesperson and headed up the party's Scotland in the World team during his time at Westminster, said Ms Chambers relayed to him what he had heard a lot from officials and diplomats already, that Scotland's standing in the world is only going to expand in the years to come. He said, One thing that struck me when I wrote the book, is that there is a clear recognition that Scotland has a significant international footprint, that Scotland is influenced by the world around it, but is influencing the world around it as well. Given the impact of foreign affairs on things that really matter to people, like energy and food prices, it's also important that we discuss and debate Scotland's foreign policy footprint in a sensible way. Antonia Chambers reflected what I've heard from a number of diplomats, officials and even politicians around the world, that Scotland is an international actor whose participation in global affairs is only set to grow over the next few years. Mr Gethins added, given the Scottish Government's leading efforts on issues like climate change with COP26, on Brexit and that leadership role around our relationship with the European Union – it's clear Scotland is being taken increasingly seriously as an international actor. An exclusive front-page article written by Steph Braun. The National News, on Wednesday the 31st of August. Yusuf's plea as A&E figures hit new high. An article issued by the National Newsdesk. The number of people waiting more than 12 hours at Scotland's emergency departments is at its highest level, new figures show. In the week up to August the 21st, some 1,287 people waited longer than half a day before being admitted or discharged at A&E. This figure increased from 983 the week before and rises above the previous high of 1,190 in the week up to July the 3rd. The number of people waking longer than eight hours was also at a record high, with 3,159 in the same week – up from 2,880 the week before. The Scottish Government aims to have at least 95% of patients at A&E seen and admitted or discharged within four hours, but this figure sat at just 65% in the week of July 6th, the second lowest on record. Some 9,093 of the 26,017 people attending emergency departments waited longer than four hours, according to figures from Public Health Scotland. Health Secretary Hamza Youssef is asking Scots to consider if they need to go to A&E before attending during winter, when pressure is expected to increase. Occupancy and staffing pressures remain high across emergency departments and continue to have an impact on the delivery of services, he said. Covid has not gone away, but despite this, almost two-thirds of patients are being seen within four hours of arrival. As we begin to enter the winter period, people should consider whether their condition is an emergency, such as stroke, heart attack or major trauma, before going to A&E. Local GPs and pharmacies can be contacted during the day for non-critical care. NHS 24 is also available day and night on 111 for non-emergency inquiries. Through our urgent and unscheduled care collaborative programme, we're investing £50 million to drive down waiting times, including further development of flow navigation centres in every board to ensure rapid access to a clinician and scheduled appointments where possible. This will avoid people waiting in A&E waiting rooms unnecessarily. Scottish Lib Dem leader Alex Cole-Hamilton urged the Health Secretary to come up with a plan to fix emergency departments ahead of Parliament returning from recess next week. An article issued by the National News
5: Desk.
1: Recorded from the National on the 31st of August 2022 from the Culture Section Recorded by Amy Former Whiskey Executive Ian Baxter takes CEO position at Scotland Food and Drink. Benidian Wilson a former senior executive in the whisky industry has been announced as the new chief executive of Scotland's Food and Drink, an industry lead- leadership body. Ian Baxter, who has 15 years experience with firms such as Glenmorangie, Inver House, International Beverage and Ian Macleod Distillers, will start his new role on October 31st, with current deputy CEO John Davidson acting as interim until then. The organisation is a 400-strong membership of businesses and has been described as the voice of Scotland's £15 billion food and drink sector. Baxter will be tasked with increasing exports and the development of Scotland's reputation as a world leader in sustainable food and drink production. Out with his experience in the drink sector, Baxter has held management roles in housing and the rail industry, being Sales and Marketing Director at the Caledonian Sleeper between 2015 and 2018. He will take over from James Withers, who resigned in May after 11 years in the role. The announcement has been welcomed by Lucinda Bruce-Garden, founder of the Genius Foods and chair of Scotland Food and Drink, who described Baxter as the ideal candidate. She said, following a rigorous search process led by Carlyle, he stood out as the ideal candidate to take Scotland Food and Drink into the next chapter of the organisation. Ian's experience leading change across industries will be invaluable as we face up to the harsh macroeconomic realities that face our and every other area of the economy. In his whisky career, Ian championed Scotland's national drink around the world and will help us fulfil our ambition to promote Scotland globally as the land of food and drink. Baxter said that he is delighted to be joining Scotland Food and Drink at what he describes as a dynamic time for the sector. He added, We will of course face domestic and global challenges, not least the economic and environmental headwinds, which cannot be underestimated. However, with the enviable strength of our national food and drink brand, rooted in the passion and commitment of everyone involved in the sector, I am confident that Scotland is well positioned for strong growth. I am excited to be working with a great dream with our members, our industry partners and the Scottish Government to ensure we take full advantage of the opportunities that lie ahead. That article was by Ninian Wilson. Recorded from the National on the thirty-first of August, twenty twenty-two, from the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Loganair cancels three hundred flights and suspends summer schedule. See if you're affected. By Rebecca Newlands, a Scottish airline has scrapped three hundred flights amid fr- rising fuel prices. Loganair, the country's largest regional airline which is based at Glasgow Airport, announced they are suspending flights between November 2022 and March 2023. The move means Newquay Airport services will be withdrawn over winter and summer. Services to Manchester, Aberdeen, Edinburgh and Newcastle will be completely suspended. Planned summer 2023 routes linking Newquay with Teesside and Inverness will not return. A spokesperson said, it's with a heavy heart that we've taken the decision to withdraw our entire winter Newquay programme and to curtail our summer 2023 plans too. Despite all of the challenges that the pandemic has delivered, we've worked incredibly hard over the last two years to build up our presence at Cornwall Airport Newquay. We're most disappointed that short-sighted and short-term decisions by the airport's management to incentivize unsustainable operations by other airlines leave no prospect of winter flights remaining viable particularly against the backdrop of high fuel prices and rising inflation. In the meantime, we'll be directing our efforts towards other UK regional airports, such as Southampton, Exeter and Cardiff, where airport managements recognise and appreciate the enormous value that year-round sustainable regional air services can bring to their communities and local economies. Logan Air has offered all customers with bookings on the affected routes either a change of travel date or options for a refund. Summer 2023 flights are now on sale as normal. Glasgow Airport has been contacted for comment. That article was by Rebecca Newlands.
5: The National, September 1. First Scotland-China cargo ship link starts with 1 million bottles of whisky. Report by David Goodwin. It was whisky galore at Greenock Ocean Terminal as cargo ship operators began transporting a million bottles of our national drink to the Far East. The new freight route is the first direct Scotland-China container service and Greenock has been hailed as the perfect fit for the globe-spanning venture. The giant all seas pioneer ship docked at Ocean Terminal shortly after 9.30 a.m. on Saturday to take on board the huge haul. The service, a partnership between KC Liner Agencies, DKT All Cs, and China Express, transported imports including textiles, furniture, and toys for the Scottish market. Its containers were then loaded with tens of thousands of cases of whisky in a boost for the export market before the ship departed bound for Ningbo. Jim McSporten, Clayport director at Peelport said, It's great to finally welcome this vital service to Greenock Ocean Terminal. Our terminal is a perfect fit for such a global trade connection. And this is again shown by the significant volumes we will be helping ship back to China. We believe this partnership will prove to be a hugely positive development for businesses and customers, as well as boosting the wider supply chain. And we look forward to continuing to work with our partners on this service in the coming months. David Mullen, KC Group Shipping Managing Director said, we knew China Express was a service needed by many sectors but still we have been amazed at the level of immediate interest. It's been a phenomenal success for KC Group Shipping, but this is just the first of many journeys and we need the support of Scottish importers and exporters to safeguard the long-term future of this new service. We will be toasting the success of more than 1 million bottles of Scotch whisky being traded from the first vessel alone and will raise a glass to all the other businesses which will also benefit. I describe this as a game changer for Scotland and the uptake in the service is certainly proving that case for Scotland's furniture, pharmaceuticals, packaging and spirits sectors. Inverclyde council leader Stephen McCabe also welcomed the new route and said, the freight side of Greenock Ocean Terminal." can often be overshadowed and sometimes forgotten about because of the busy cruise ship schedule. But the container shipping side of the terminal has also grown substantially in recent years and the new Glasgow City Region Cruise Ship Visitor Center development including the dedicated cruise ship pontoon has created more capacity for both container and passenger levels to aid the continued growth of both markets and further boost the economy locally, regionally and nationally. The decision by KC Shipping to establish this direct link from Greenock to China, the first in Scotland, combined with the visitor centre development and ambitious Clyde Green Freeport bid is a ringing endorsement of Greenock and Inverclyde as an important location for exports, imports and visitors and long may that continue. Three sailings will take place per month in each direction, calling at Ningbo and the Chinese city of Shenzhen before arriving in Greenock via its sister container terminal at the port of Liverpool. Peel Ports is a partner in Clyde Green Freeport BID along with HES Airports, Glasgow Airport, Mossend International Freight Rail Freight Park in North Lanarkshire and a partnership of the Glasgow City Region Councils. The so-called multi-model initiative aims to attract major new investment, develop global trading opportunities, create tens of thousands of new jobs, accelerate net zero objectives agreed at COP26, and take the region's world-class innovation economy to the next level. Report by David Goodwin. The National, September 1. Tories applaud the question on how to suppress Scotland's First Minister. Report by Craig Michin Rishi Sunak has been asked by a Conservative Party member how he would suppress Nicola Sturgeon. The candidate appeared alongside rival and front runner Liz Truss at the twelfth and final Tory hustings before party members vote to determine who will be the next Prime Minister of the UK. The former Chancellor faced questions from Conservative Party members and LBC host Nick Ferrari in London last night. At the end of the event, a party member told Sunak the unity of the United Kingdom must be key point for the next Prime Minister. He said, seeing the riot that the SNP runs in Parliament and the amazing statements that come from their leader in Edinburgh. How will you suppress Nicola Sturgeon? The question saw applause from audience members as Sunak laughed before replying. It's an excellent question. So I think when it comes to Scotland, there are probably three things I would say to all of you that I would do as Prime Minister. I think the first is we need to more actively demonstrate the benefit of the United Kingdom government in Scotland. And that's something that we started doing with Michael Gove and I working together with Alistair Jack to demonstrate that the UK government was investing in Scottish communities for the first time and it's changed the conversation. He said as well as this, he would call out the failures of Nicola Sturgeon's leadership as he criticised the Scottish Government's record on schools and hospitals, which he said were not performing as well as they should. And he continued, the second thing is to remember when it comes to the Union in Scotland is who we are speaking to. We're not just speaking to ourselves. We're not just speaking to Conservatives. We need to talk to all the other people in Scotland who don't vote conservative, but are unionists. So we need to have a leader who can speak to them. And I believe I can. Sunak said the third and most important thing to remember was that nationalism is an incredibly seductive and romantic idea. If unionists only meet it with arguments about currency, borrowing, or who's going to pay for pensions or issues around trade, it won't be good enough. Ferrari asked Sunak if he thought Sturgeon was an attention seeker and if Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford was a low energy Jeremy Corbyn, pointing to previous comments by Liz Truss. Sunak responded, I think in all these cases We have to respect the fact that these are the legitimately elected leaders of Scotland and Wales, that the United Kingdom Prime Minister has to obviously work with them and constructively and demonstrate that to the people of Scotland, that we can work with them. But what we do need to do as Conservatives, we need to take the fight to them and beat them. That's what we need to do. It marks a stark difference in tone from rival and front-runner Truss, who was asked about her comments insulting devolved leaders Sturgeon and Drakeford, as well as French President Emmanuel Macron. Despite previously saying the jury is out on whether Macron is friend or foe, the Foreign Secretary refused to answer whether former American President Donald Trump or Chinese President Xi Jinping were friends or foes. As Ferrari read out her remarks on the devolved leaders, which saw applause from the Wembley crowd, Truss said, I still agree with myself, by the way. Truss also claimed there would be no new taxes on our energy rationing if she became prime minister, as she dropped hints about further cost of living support. The Tory leadership front runner reiterated her two priorities are to cut taxes and to secure the UK's energy supply as people across the country battle soaring costs. She added a third priority would be to address costs in the form of a budget or a fiscal event, telling the audience in a fiscal event, the Chancellor would address the issue of household support. Asked by Ferrari whether she would agree to no new taxes, as outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson did, Ms Truss said, yes, no new taxes. Voting in the Tory leadership contest closes at 5pm tomorrow, and the winner will be announced on Monday. Report by Craig Meachan.
0: That was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently
1: recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.